1: Uh, but we're going to take a look at medieval, or or Middle Ages, or Dark Ages Christianity uh, today, and it really is ridiculously ambitious to try to cover this thousand years. But we're doing the whole thing in nine weeks, and I'm not going to be here next week. You're going to watch a great video on John Wycliffe, um, which would be well worth your time. It's an award-winning uh, period piece, and you'll enjoy it, I think, and learn a lot. Um, so, but that put you know us even more you know uh, with the need to cover this much. Also, even worse, last time I didn't get to Augustine, which we were supposed to cover. So, I'm sorry, Brevard, I don't see us doing Nestorianism tonight. So, um, any of you interested in Nestorianism, we can talk about that, a very important movement. But I'll tell you, we didn't talk about origin, there's lots of things, we're just not going to cover it all. But I want to begin by talking about Augustine, and Augustine is a good bridge figure from, um, uh, from the early era of the church into the Middle Ages, and really right onto the Reformation. And some people have said that the the Reformation itself was an argument uh, between uh, one interpretation of Augustine and another interpretation of Augustine. Some have said that the Catholics held on to Augustine's doctrine of the sacraments and of the church and of papal authority, whereas the Reformers held on to his doctrine of grace, salvation by grace alone and predestination, justification by faith alone. Both of those teachings can be found in Augustine. Very significant person. The first thing that we have to talk about when we look at Augustine is look about look at how he came to personal faith in Christ. It was a really torturous path for him, a difficult journey. He tried it all. He was a scholar, he was an intelligent young man. He was also somewhat of a hedonist. He uh he was a pleasure seeker. Uh he fathered a child when he was eighteen years old. Uh they named him Adeodatus, given to God as a gift gift to God was the child's name, but fathered by his concubine. Um, You know, some of the same issues we struggle with today, he struggled with back then. He said when he came to Carthage, he was burning with lust. It was a big problem in his life, and he didn't know how he could be freed from evil desires. Um, He also was dabbling in a lot of different religions. He was looking at different uh, thought systems, like Manichaeism, which had a radical dualism, good and evil, uh, this kind of thing, different philosophies that he was trying. Uh, Neoplatonism, looking into the, the philosophies of Plato. Um, but none of it brought him satisfaction. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, he has a godly mother praying for him. Now, what can beat that? Monica praying for him, praying and praying. And his, He had a pagan father, but he had a godly mother, and she was praying and praying for him. And uh, just wrestling with things. He was aware of Christianity, more than aware. But he just couldn't give his life to Christ, wrestling with things. His story is told autobiographically in in the Confessions, brilliantly written. It's written in the second person. He's talking to God the whole time. Then you did this, then you did that, then you spoke to my heart, then you worked this way. It's a prayer. The whole book is a prayer. It is really strong and devotional, the way it's written. Very passionate. And he talks about all the things that God did to bring him to a place of repentance and faith. Uh, the city has been often told about how he came uh, to Christ he was in a garden and he uh, was a walled garden and he was just struggling with various things and next door there are some children playing and they're they're singing in Latin "Tolle lege, tole lege they're singing this over and over which was just a game they're playing but it meant take up and read, take up and read well he thought well what is there to take up and read and he looked around and there's an open Bible just sitting on a bench in in the garden Just by chance, of course. And he opens up, just by chance, to Romans uh, chapter 13, which says, Not in drunkenness, lust, orgies, or detestable idolatry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Just by chance, he opens to that passage. Now again, things started to click into place, and he already knew the gospel. But at that moment, he had given his life to Christ. And I remember when I preached through Romans, I introduced some. The the book of Romans has converted more people. It's just incredible what God has done through that book. I'd like to read a couple of excerpts from um, Confessions. The very start is so beautiful. And you get a flavor of Augustine's passion for the Lord uh, in the way he, he begins this work. Can any praise be worthy of the Lord's majesty? How magnificent His strength! How inscrutable His wisdom! Man is one of your creatures, O Lord, and his instinct is to praise you. He bears about him the mark of death, the sign of his own sin, to remind him that you thwart the proud. But still, since he is a part of your creation, he wishes to praise you. The thought of you stirs him so deeply that he cannot be content until he praises you. Because you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts find no peace until they find their rest in you. Isn't that powerful? You have made us for yourself, O oh Lord, and the heart of man finds no rest until it finds its peace in you. We really are created to praise God. That's what we're made for. And we're sick until we come into health through praising Jesus Christ and through knowing Him. Well, another aspect of Augustine was the way he wrestled with deep theological issues of his day. know, you remember we talked about the various councils and they're struggling with the person and the work of Christ and I summarize the councils on the board here for you. And it really is a deep mystery, isn't it? Who Jesus Christ is and how his human nature relates to his divine nature. There were four councils and they, and they kind of straddle Augustine's life. And he became one of the chief writers on the doctrine of the Trinity as the councils were working these teachings through. The first we talked about last time, the Council of Nicaea, in which it was established that Jesus Christ was fully divine as over against the Arians who taught that he was a created being, not fully divine, something below God the Father. Well, it wasn't done yet. There's still more wrestling. 381, they had to have the Council of Constantinople in which they had to determine that Christ was fully human. I was going too much one way or the other. And this came with the idea of docetism, that he only seemed to be human. He actually was a spirit or God but not truly in the flesh. He was not truly a human being, but they refuted that. So he's fully divine and fully human, but now they're asking, Well, how do do those persons relate to each other? And there were other struggles about that. And so there was another council in 431, basically that he's one person, not two separate persons or some strange thing like that. And then finally, how do those two natures relate within the one person? He is a human and divine in one person, they, it, all together. And so at Chalcedon 451, the whole doctrine's been worked out, and it hasn't changed since, except by cults, false teachers. Augustine just understood this so well and wrote so beautifully on the doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, the whole doctrine of the Trinity comes, if you understand all this, but then you've got God the Father, how does, it, how does that fit together? And that's where we developed and understood the doctrine of the Trinity. So that was one of the issues he was struggling with and wrestling with. But probably one of the key issues he ever dealt with was the issue of Pelagianism. Pelagianism. Pelagius was a monk, I believe in Ireland, and he basically denied original sin. He denied the idea that we are born sinful in Adam, that human beings have a natural bent towards sin. Now, I don't know how you can deny that, if you took a penny and flipped it up and it landed head six billion times in a row, wouldn't you think something's wrong with the penny? All right? And so every person you've ever met, as soon as they understand right from wrong, what do they do? Wrong. Not every time, but every time within the life of a person, it's universal. But Pelagius denied it. He felt that we had complete free will. And that we had the ability at any time to choose to do right, at any time to turn to Christ or God, believe in him freely. There was complete freedom. And so between Pelagius and Augustine, we have the, the beginnings of a debate that's gone on right to this present time. Between predestination, the the, uh, the freedom of God, uh, election, all of these things, and free will now the root of it came in a statement that augustine made in the confessions and pelagius absolutely abhorred it so this can't be right this is what he said again remember the state that augustine was in when he came to um to north africa he was burning with lust struggling with his sin nature and he wanted freedom from that and it says there can't be no hope for me except in your great mercy Give me the grace to do as you command and then command whatever you will. Now, what is he saying? He's saying basically, if you enable me to obey commands, I'll be able to do it. But if you leave me to myself, I will never do it. Remember what he opened up to, Romans 13. Not in drunkenness, lust, carousing, detestable idolatry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, etc. He's learning from that saying, it's not that easy, not in these things. Not in lust, etc. We can't. I wrestled with that for years. Never had success. Augustine said, "But God, if you give me grace, well, then I can resist sin." Pelagius hated this. So this is this is heresy. God gives the command; it's our job to obey. Now, I think Augustine was right, and Pelagius was wrong. I think that we are slaves to sin. I think that Pelagius totally under Uh, or undercut, or watered down, or did not understand the doctrine of Romans 1, 2, and 3. If you look at Romans 1, 2, and 3, what is it teaching? There is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. We've together become worthless. And then in Romans 7, the, the fact that we're enslaved to sin. Romans 5, that in Adam, all of us sin. Pelagius had a problem with the book of Romans, not with Augustine. And so there was some tension and some struggles there, and they continued on. All right, there's more we could say about Augustine, but we need to move on. Um, And I hope in the second half of our church history course to go back and pick up some of the great heroes of the faith and do one per week. so We have a whole time to talk about individuals. I don't know if it's going to be Augustine, but it would be well worth our time. Now, around the time of Augustine's life, something incredibly significant happened, and that is that Rome fell. The city of Rome, the so-called Eternal City, on, uh, on August twenty fourth, 410, was sacked by Alaric and the Goths. And actually, they didn't do much damage at that point, but it was the beginning of a series of sackings of Rome, <coughs> which ultimately led to its total destruction. So Rome had fallen, and Jerome, the uh, Latin scholar who was living in the Holy Land at the time, Jerome, by the way, is the one who translated the scriptures, old and new, <coughs> and the Apocrypha, into Latin. And that became Europe's Bible until the Reformation. It was Jerome that translated the Bible into Latin. did a good job, excellent job. He was a great scholar, but he had there were some key issues about his translation. We're going to talk about it in two weeks uh, when we talk about the Reformation. Uh, some key issues, but Jerome was a great scholar, but he was destroyed, just devastated by the idea of Rome falling. Didn't understand it. And he says, the world goes to ruin. <clears throat> yes, but in spite of it and to our shame, Our sins still live and even prosper. The great city, the capital of the Roman Empire, has been devoured by a great fire. And all over the earth, the Romans wander in exile. Churches which were once revered are now but dust and ashes. And that was literally happening. The barbarians were destroying everything. They were destroying culture. They were destroying Christian buildings. They were destroying Greece and Rome and and everything of value. And so it was a very dark time, a difficult time. Meanwhile, Augustine, interestingly, has to defend Christianity against some pagans, classical pagans, who said that Rome fell because it went Christian. It's been less than a hundred years since Constantine had declared himself a Christian. They said, you know, the old pagan gods kept Rome safer than this new Christian god. And so he's got to defend Rome or defend Christianity in light of the fall of Rome. And he writes a great book, maybe one of his greatest books, The City of God, to defend the uh, idea that there is a city of God and there's a city of... and that the two are intermingled in human history. So that human cities like Rome is not the city of God. There's a separation there. That God is building an eternal city out of believers, people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, there's a city of the devil that continues with its history and does nothing but persecute and attack the city of God. City of God is the first unified theology of history and uh, just a brilliant work. And in it, he's tracing out all of history and how God is using it. And remember what we talked about last time, Eusebius, who loved Constantine, remember, who called him the 13th apostle. He got too close to Rome. Jerome, I think, too. Others have looked at Rome as the beast of Revelation. All right? He was neither, neither on one side or the other. It was a human city. And within the city, the city of God could be formed. But the city of God was not dependent on a city like Rome. And the city of God would continue even after Rome lay smoldering. He was right. He was right. But we've got these barbarians in there sweeping through. Many of these bar- barbarians were converted to Christianity. At first, the false kind of Christianity, namely Arianism. But eventually, even that got rooted out thanks to Athanasius, who we talked about, and to just good doctrinal instruction and so there were many missionaries that went out from Rome from Roman Christianity to these barbarians these pagans preaching the gospel boldly one of my favorite stories comes from much later around the 700s Saint Boniface Boniface was a was a Catholic or Roman missionary who went into the woods of Thuringia Germany and started preaching the gospel to these barbarian German tribes now the funny thing is many of us sitting in this room may have ancestors who are among those wild German barbarians, you know, we think of ourselves as so cultured, but uh, anyway, he went in there, and uh, apparently they worshiped sacred oak, the oak of Thor, it was called, Well, Boniface says, we've got to put an end to this, so he gets an axe, and starts chopping at this oak, now that's boldness, now it also is maybe stupidity, because how long is it going to take to chop a sacred oak down with one axe? I mean, I tried to chop a little tree in my yard down that had been toppled over, but I, you know, was still standing in some way, and it took me about an hour and a half. It was just one of those little lob lolly pines. And all. what are you going to do with a sacred oak? And there he is with his axe. Well, no sooner does he start chopping at it than an incredible wind blows through the forest and knocks, it, knocks the tree over, right like that. Now, what do you think these people thought when they saw that? Well, you can imagine there was mass conversion, and there was. And he took that. Uh, whether they were truly believers or not, I don't know. But that was an amazing display of the power of God. And then he takes the wood from that oak and he builds a church and they worship in it. Tremendous story. But these these heathens and pagans are coming to faith in Christ, at least some kind of faith. I don't know if all of them were genuine uh, believers in Christ. And we're going to get into that as we talk about Christendom and the whole idea of mass conversions and other things. But uh, that was what was going on. Along uh, at this time as well, uh, came a strengthening of monasticism we're going to focus right now on the idea of benedict of nursia benedict lived a little bit after augustine 480 to 543 and he established the rule of benedict he was educated in rome he was shocked by the immoral lives of his companions and he left school in his teens and retired to a dark secluded cave Does that sound like fun go live in a dark secluded cave but well, that's what he did and so there he was, and he's um, living as a hermit for three years. Well, shortly thereafter, he founds a monastery in a beautiful area of Neapolitan region, northern Italy, between Rome and Naples, uh, <clears throat> Monte Cassino. Um, it was interesting, during World War II, they tried to avoid bombing that area because of its historical importance. Beautiful, beautiful mountainous area, and he established um, a monastery there. But even more important, he composed the Benedictine rule. If you turn the page... On page two, uh, these are the four points of the Benedictine rule. And this became the foundation to all the other monastic orders. They all took their starting place from Benedict. And the four points were, number one, organization. At the head of each monastery was an abbot who was in charge. And there were sub-rules behind this, but this was kind of the main heading. Organization and authority. Number two, a threefold vow. First of the three vows, perpetual obedience to the order. Number two, voluntary poverty and celibacy. And number three, obedience to a superior. That was kind of like mentoring. You'd have somebody who would be uh, a mentor to you. Uh, Ultimately, kind of came to be known as a father confessor or a personal confessor, somebody you'd meet with who would help you along. Number three, exercise. They worked hard, manual labor, educational instruction, worship, meditation, study. This was important, too, for the preservation of, of um, books and learning during the so-called dark ages because Benedict was committed to learning so the monks were committed to learning and they were committed to copying the Bible more than anything but also other works of ancient literature and so we can thank Benedict and uh, and the monks for preserving a candle of learning during the so-called dark ages when these Germanic hordes are sweeping across Europe one after another after another destroying everything and then fourth was simplicity Simplicity must govern every area of life. The Benedictine order became the model for all following monastic orders, and there was great influence, as I've said, through the copying of scriptures and other books. The third important aspect of this time is the rise of the papacy, the pope. Now, before this time, the pope was really just the bishop of Rome. Bishop of Rome was one uh, among equals. But he came to be known as the first among equals. And eventually, after that, to be known as the Pope. Now, the word Pope, I think, is rooted in the, I think, Italian, which means father, maybe Latin. But that's where it comes from. The tradition has it that Peter was the first bishop of Rome. That's what the Catholics say. And that there's been an unbroken succession from Peter right on down to John Paul II. Very debatable. But that's what they claim. Barbarian invasions greatly increased the Pope's authority in the West. He became kind of the holder of culture of society authoritative figures were able to confront barbarian kings and gain concessions from them and their prestige was increased like Leo the Great he was the first pope in the modern sense in AD 452 he goes out from prostrate Rome the city of Rome like I said it wasn't destroyed by Alaric there were successive conquerors I mean everybody wanted a chance to conquer Rome just like these days it's not all that great an accomplishment for a mountaineer to get to the top of Mount Everest there's almost a parade up that mountain. So if you've got the wherewithal and ability and support and structure to to climb, you can do Mount Everest. It's not that big a deal anymore. And so it was with conquering Rome. If you've got an army enough, you can come right on down the peninsula and conquer Rome. Well, Leo goes out and he meets a of the Hun called the Scourge of Rome or Scourge of God, and you know Rome is just ready to be conquered yet again. And he basically says, "Don't enter the city." And they were afraid of him. Almost superstitiously, they thought there. I think there were some visions of angels and some other things that went into this whole thing traditionally. Um, but they were afraid, and uh, this is truly a matter of history that he was able to talk Attila out of going into Rome. He bypassed it. Well, this obviously greatly enhanced his prestige, and also the prestige of his successors. So that's kind of where you get uh, the first maybe modern pope. He also claimed to be Peter's Esther. He was the first one to make that claim uh, and uh, laid the groundwork for papal succession. The greatest of these popes was Gregory the Great, however. I know Leo the Great and Gregory the Great, but um, Gregory was even greater than Leo, so if you could put Leo the Great with a small g and Gregory the Great with a capital G. He really laid the groundwork for medieval Catholicism. A lot of the things that the Reformers dealt with were, were put into practice and first laid down by Gregory the Great. Uh, in 590 A.D., Rome was in agony at this point. This is 140 years after Leo now. There were floods, there was war, there was the uh, plague, and there were numerous plagues during the Middle Ages, not just one. Um, but carts were piled high. People were went insane. Uh, Pope Pelagius II, his predecessor, died screaming in agony from the plague. It was a terrible time. He was a quiet man. He was really a monk, uh, just wanted a life of seclusion and meditation, didn't want anything to do with the papacy. And when he heard that, that this man had died, and that he was pretty much draft pick number one for the next spot, he fled, and he's running, trying to get away, and they caught up with him and dragged him back in the city to be pope. Um, he was 50 when he became pope. He was balding. He was frail. He had no craving for papal office. Uh, he was a very humble man. Uh, he hated pride. He thought pride was the root of all of other sins, and so... He was constantly working on his own pride. It was difficult because at this point there was a lot of prestige in being Pope. He worked on it all the time. He was really a monk at heart. He was a prolific writer, organizer of monasteries. Now, we're talking about Gregory, and what's come down to us these days are the Gregorian chants. Have you ever heard of the Gregorian chants? I actually like to play some Gregorian chant for you right now. Are you interested in hearing this? It's really come down very little change from that... that, um, or so they tell us who can say I mean you can't really know for sure this is what they sound like
0: can
1: you hear that? eerie isn't
0: it
1: for those of you that are interested you can get a monk habit brown hooded pullover for 1995 from angel cds Uh, if any of you are interested in that i think it's kind of tacky because it says chant on the front with angel under it but if you'd like a benedictine or a gregorian chant robe see me afterwards and you can get down the information so anyway, that's come out, and they've got another CD after that. But those Gregorian chants have come down pretty much unchanged from Gregory. Um, he also is the fountain of a great deal of error, in my opinion. Um, a lot of things came down through him. He established, for example, tradition on a par with Scripture. He just wanted to follow Augustine. Augustine was his hero. So Augustine had, a, had a, um, an energetic, fertile mind, just always thinking about things and just wrote incredible amounts of stuff. So in, with that, that's a bad combination, okay? Because it means just any speculation, anything that you're just kind of playing with, it's down in print, and it clearly contradicts something else written some other place, but there's no way you can know that because they didn't have search engines or CD-ROMs back then. I mean, and as someone once said, if anyone claims to have read all of Augustine, he's a liar, and that's true. I mean, the guy wrote unbelievable amounts of stuff. Well, Gregory really honored and idolized Augustine. And Augustine speculated, for example, that it might be uh, that after death, some people who aren't fully ready for heaven might be might wait in an antechamber and be purged of their sins. And that came to be known as what? Purgatory. That ends up being huge. And uh, he was the first that really kind of codified that. Uh, there's a story on purgatory that Gregory himself told a certain monk died in sin, wasn't ready for heaven. His abbot, who turned out to be Gregory himself, ordered that daily masses be said on, on his behalf. Um, after a while, his soul appeared to a brother after 30 days, declaring he was now free from purgatory and could go on to heaven. From then on, 30-day masses were said to be sufficient to purge generally pious people. This is not a joke. This is what happened. It was a vision that was kind of established after that. So you'd say masses for a month. For a dead person, hopefully to free them from purgatory. Um, there are other problems. For example, he set aside the Augustinian emphasis on grace, predestination, election. He didn't totally go toward Pelagius. He became what we could call semi-Pelagian, and the Roman Catholic Church has been semi-Pelagian ever since, right up to this present day. They missed the boat. Luther tried to bring them back to their true Augustinian roots, and they missed it by excommunicating Luther. They stayed with semi-Pelagianism, a focus on human effort, human activity, human good works, and that traced back to Gregory establishing that. What you want to do is you want to try to find how we can approach God, and so therefore we're going to get the idea of penance, contrition, confession, good works done, uh, various things, and it became the root of a whole system of medieval Catholicism. Gregory was the, the root of it. So we get original sin and free will. He sought a middle course, therefore, between Augustine and Pelagius on that and a focus on human good works. He also brought in the idea of saints in heaven. Now, the Bible calls a saint... Who's a saint, according to the Bible? A believer in Jesus Christ. Who's a saint, according to Gregory? Well, a special kind of person who the church has recognized as unusually pious, usually with some miracles and some other things attending to their life. And they have to be dead. And once they're up there, um, they're able to pray for us. And so we might ask them to pray for us the way we would ask each other to pray for us. It's not all that far-fetched, really. But um, praying to the saints then became a, a significant issue. I don't think that they developed the idea of a treasury of merits yet. That will come in later. But the idea of a treasury of merits is that the saints had done more than was necessary for their own salvation. Doesn't that gag you? How can you ever get ahead of God's law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors as yourself all the time, forever and ever. Amen. Can you get ahead of that? Yeah, go ahead. Well, that's a whole different issue. They came to be afraid in the Middle Ages of Jesus. Jesus was pictured, and rightly so, as the judge of all mankind, and he is. According to John chapter 5, the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. And so he was painted as seated on a rainbow, a symbol of judgment, with the damned on his left and the righteous on his right. And people were terrified. They were illiterate, of course. And they go into these cathedrals and see these paintings. And so they needed a kind of a kinder, gentler intercessor, mediator. And who did they turn to? Mary. And that's where that came from. Just the, the whole Mariology. They need somebody to bring them to Jesus because Jesus is so terrifying. And it's really tragic how this, and it's all because they didn't know the Scriptures. Didn't know the Scriptures. So they did not see Jesus as approachable. They saw him as terrifying. Never mind the Father himself. And again, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but there was, in medieval culture, uh, a sense of incredible hierarchy. You know right where you are in that rung. You're a, you're a serf on a minor lord's land, and he's, he belongs to this guy who's one of 20 lords. That you just knew where you were, and you were low. Um, so never mind Jesus, who reigned over the whole thing. You just could never approach him. But Mary seemed attractive. So there's that, saints in heaven. Relics which are pieces of bone and other things that were said to have certain miraculous powers. And people would take pilgrimages to go touch these things or be near them. Uh, the mass, he greatly enhanced the prestige and the importance of the mass and the Holy Eucharist. We'll talk more about that uh, when we get to the Reformation. Papal authority, he scorned high-sounding titles. Remember, he's a very humble man, but yet he considered himself first among equals. In his writings, he expected to be obeyed. Land ownership, this was the first time that the church really started buying up land. It then became a major political player, just like uh, any other king or landowner in the Middle Ages. They owned more land in Italy than anyone else. And after a while, they owned more land in France than anyone else. And this became a major problem, but it started with Gregory. And clerical celibacy, though not found in the scriptures, it's found in Gregory. So all priests had to be celibate, no, no wives. Episcopal succession, all bishops had to be Ordained by previous bishops, and so that lent to the whole idea of papal succession, and then the growth of monasticism and the Gregorian chants, which we just read. Now, another major impact on this, on the Middle Ages, were the Islamic conquests. Around this time, a um, uh, what do you call him? Arabic camel trader, and that's what he was. He um, was in business with an elderly widow who he eventually married, named Muhammad was poking around in the the region near the Holy Land uh, in Arabia. He was familiar with Judaism and with a perverse form of Christianity, a kind of a Christian um, sect or perhaps even cult. He did not have a right understanding of Christianity. He thought, for example, that the Trinity was uh, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, I believe. He did not understand the Trinity properly. so, obviously, if somebody had gotten to him and preached the true gospel, we might not have, never have had Islam. And is, Islam, the Islamic countries, represent the majority of the work yet to be done in the Great Commission, by far. That's where most of the unbelievers are. And I think the, what we're about to cover will explain some of it. Um, but he went to Mecca. The polytheistic Arab merchants rejected him. They persecuted him. He fled to Medina. All right? In 622, this is considered by Muslims the beginning of Islam when he fled to Medina. There in Medina, he sets up somewhat of a theocracy. He set up a bunch of rules and regulations and codified them, wrote them down, and it became Islam. The word Islam means submission. A Muslim is one who submits. So basically, God is a just and a merciful God. He is completely autonomous, does not answer to anything, even his own laws or standards. He can be arbitrary. Uh, he, he's not, he doesn't make a promise and then have to uphold it the way our God I uh, wouldn't say that our God is under his word it's just that his word is consistent with his nature he never needs to change his word but they would say that he can make a law and then change it he's like Nebuchadnezzar you know he can change his mind anytime he chooses and he does interestingly enough this is one of the reasons why western Europe eventually succeeded and went past the Arab, or the Muslim nations because they did not believe in the empirical method and science because God could change the world anytime time. So why study it? Why look into the basic laws of nature? Because God is capricious and he can change any time. And so they didn't study science. They were big into mathematics, but they were not into science. Very interesting, but that's another thing for another day. Uh, After he died, Arab warriors fired with Islamic zeal started sweeping both northward and westward. They go northward up through the promised land. That's huge because now they've conquered in 638 Jerusalem. And not only that, but a lot of other centers of Christianity. Meanwhile, they sweep westward across North Africa, which I called last time the Bible belt of the ancient Christian world. That's where the strongest Christian centers were. That's also where all those controversies over Donatism and Manichaeism were. That's where Augustine was. Now, this is hundreds of years after Augustine they swept across. And basically they gave you a choice. They put a scimitar at the back of your neck and said, Become a Muslim or die. Well, <laughs> I mean, that's martyrdom right there. I mean, you can decide what you're going to do, and a lot of them, a lot of those former strong Christian centers became became restricted or even disappeared entirely. Like Carthage, for example, they swept across the Straits of Gibraltar into Spain. They conquered almost all of Visigothic Spain. They sweep up into France, and there they finally are stopped at one of the most critical battles in the history of the of the uh, of Europe. Charles Martel, who Charlemagne's grandfather stops them at the Battle of Tours and they're pushed back into Spain and eventually they start receding and receding and receding and receding and finally under Ferdinand and Isabella who also commissioned a little uh, exploration out you know out west across the ocean uh, they they are able to push the the Moors completely out of Spain because of their marriage and their power in, in their marriage together um significance of this: many ancient centers of Christianity were now Muslim: Jerusalem, Antioch, Damascus, Alexandria, Carthage. many of these areas, Christianity ceased growing or disappeared entirely. The Byzantine Empire, what was the Eastern Roman Empire, okay, um, was restricted because of the, they bumped up against each other and they would struggle for the next ooh, maybe 800 years. All right, but they could not conquer Constantinople, not yet. So that's why I say that the Roman Empire lasted a thousand years. Because that was Eastern Rome, is what that was. But what happened was, a lot of these vigorous centers like Alexandria and all these, they were places of learning and theology. They were holding Byzantine or Eastern Christianity back from strange ideas. And once the Muslims swept in there, it was like the tether was cut and Eastern Orthodoxy became strange. And it's been odd ever since. There ended up being a split between East and West. You know, Eastern Orthodoxy, the Russian Orthodox Church and all that. That's why we consider Russia a country that needs to be evangelized. Well, all those roots happened at that point. Geography of Christianity totally changed, no longer centered around Mediterranean, uh, centered more in Europe. And then Eastern Christianity became more and more isolated. All right, what happened next in Europe was the Carolingian Empire. Charles Martel's grandson was Charlemagne. Charlemagne in the year 800 Christmas Day was crowned by the pope to be emperor, what they called Holy Roman Emperor. All right? So he chose one of the kings, and he was the most powerful king, he was the king of the Franks, and he was made emperor over that whole central region of Europe, and that continued right on into the time of the Reformation. And it started a whole kind of interesting dance between the papacy papal authority, and then whatever king seemed to be in line next to be the next Holy Roman Emperor. And so there's a real mingling of church and state here, lots of political intrigue, lots of exciting times, who's going to pay who what and, and how it's going to work. It also was an influence on who would become the next Pope, kings would kind of maneuver their candidates. Very interesting time. Um, Charlemagne was, a, was, an, was an amazing man, he himself was not well educated, but he was a patron of learning, education reviled, revived under his rule. Um, In 784, he had conquered the Frisians and Saxons and had them forcibly baptized. So, not much difference at that point between Charlemagne and the mullahs that are sweeping across North Africa. It's kind of how it was done back then. Convert or die. Um, Now, again, I I told you this from the very beginning. If, If the church had understood Jesus' statement in front of Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, if it were, my servants would have fought to prevent me I'm being handed over to you but as it is my kingdom is from another place none of this would have happened and it really stems from Constantine from that point on there was major confusion about the relationship between the state and the church and the role of the sword in particular on how Christianity advances this leads us into feudalism in the Holy Roman Empire there are various aspects of feudalism first is that land became the main source of wealth not anything else if you had land you were wealthy if you didn't you were nothing It's really that simple. And therefore, kings and lords paid for services by granting authority over lands to loyal servants. And that's where feudalism or vassalism came from. Basically, you got your land from somebody, and he was your patron. He'd protect you. He'd watch over you. You'd render him service. There'd be a kind of a covenant relationship there. Meanwhile, you might take smaller portions of your land and give them to serfs, and they'd farm your land. And in return, you'd protect them with your soldiers. Um, and they could live there and eat off the land as well. It's high, it was a whole hierarchy up and down, and it was all on who controlled the land. Uh, with feudalism, uh, it also affected, if you look at number four on page five, church lands and posts. Abbeys, monasteries, the papacy, they held a lot of land. Therefore, they ended up being a major political player. And it also was a lot of intrigue as to who would replace an abbot or an abbotess or a bishop when that person was dying became very politicized because they had land, and therefore they had power. Also, there was a fragmentation. Vassal landowners could suddenly change loyalties and go over to another more powerful king, and there was a constant fluctuation of this kind of swirling all the time. Who's allied with who? That's why the Middle Ages history is kind of hard to study because there's always this fragmentation, fragmentation. It may even be some of what Daniel was talking about in chapter 2 about the feet and the clay and, and that it's not bound together well. The Roman Empire kind of went off into that state at that point. There was not a strong mingling. Now, I'm not going to get into Daniel 2, but that is very much was like in the Middle Ages, a lot of fragmentation. Nothing really adhered one to another for a long time. After Charlemagne, there was a series of Holy Roman Emperors chosen by intricate means with greater or less influence and authority depending on, on uh, political circumstances. We're going to skip C when I'm going to talk about it. Papal Decay, uh, the crowning of Charlemagne by Pope Leo III, put the papacy in an ambiguous position. Who's going to be more powerful now? Holy Roman Emperor or the Pope? And so eventually, uh, at least at that point, the papacy decayed in its, um, in its power. There's other things in there you can read later. That's too interesting to skip. The Cadaveric Council. This is a good example of how bad the papacy was at this point. this around the year 900. Pope Stephen VI was presiding over this council. He disinterred one of his predecessors, Formosus, Pope Formosus, dressed him in his papal robes, displayed him in the streets, tried him in papal court, found him guilty of multitude of crimes, dismembered him, and then threw him in the Tiber River. That's kind of what the papacy was doing around the year 900. So that's kind of a literal example of papal decay, uh, just a little joke, um, but it was really bad. Um, their, their authority was greatly diminished at that point. At one point in the year 1045, three men simultaneously had an equal claim to the papacy they all claimed to be pope all three were deposed by a certain king henry iii of germany uh he gathered a council which he manipulated to name clement ii pope Co- clement ii what do you know turns around and crowns him holy roman emperor so that's kind of how that works one hand washes the other thus violence corruption and intrigue characterized the last stages of the carolingian era so then we have what's known as a christian society yes we had some monastic reform um, during, the, uh, during this time. Christendom, by the way, is an interesting idea. It's like a blending of Christianity and kingdom. It's really a word that represents the mingling of church and state, Christendom. And that became a word that symbolizes the Middle Ages at that point. Now, monastic reform, Benedict's rule gradually became ignored. Bernard of Clairvaux came in, and he taught that the contemplative life was superior Uh, to the life of a, a laboring life. He was a pious mystic, and he wrote such hymns as Jesus, Thou Joy of Loving Hearts, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, and Jesus, The Very Thought of Thee. These are beautiful hymns. He was a great writer and a great pious mystic. He also preached the Crusades, which we'll get to in a minute, but he believed in the Crusades. He was constantly getting visions all the time. He says the story of Martha and Mary in the Gospel shows that the contemplative life is to be preferred Mary chose the better part, but Martha's part, if that is our lot, must be born with patience. So if that's what you end up with, tough luck, uh, do your job, be happy with it. I get to do the contemplative thing, which is better by far. All right, Francis of Assisi, you've heard of St. Francis or the Fr- Franciscans. They took a vow of poverty. Uh, he considered himself to be married to lady poverty. They actually had marriage ceremonies where you kind of marry the life of poverty. Uh, he wrote a beautiful prayer, which you're familiar with, the prayer of St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubting, faith. Where there is despairing, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may seek not so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love another. For it is in giving that we now receive. It is in pardoning that we are now pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born again to eternal life. Isn't that beautiful? Very powerful. Well, right around his time came the Crusades, and it's really a jarring juxtaposition, isn't it? We read, Lord, make me an instrument of of thy peace, and we go from that into the Crusades. And what were the Crusades? Well, there was a yearning to be able for, for pilgrims to go to the Holy Land, but they couldn't because the Muslims... Held Jerusalem and other holy sites, and so there started to be some nationalistic fu- furor and a desire to rouse armies and go down and reconquer the Holy Land from the infidels, the Muslims. So they would, they went down, they gathered strength little by little. Pope Urban, Urban, sorry, Urban the Second in 1095, said this: "I say say it to those that are present. I command it to be said to those who are absent. Christ commands it." All who go there and lose their lives, be it on the road or on the sea or in the fight against the pagans, listen to this, will be granted immediate forgiveness for their sins. Where in the world do you find that in Scripture? What verse would you use to support that Pope Urban II? Of course, I guess if you're pope, you don't need the Scripture. This is what they said. This I grant to all who will march by virtue of the great gift which God has given me. And so in the First Crusade, They went down and they were successful in one sense, I suppose, by conquering or reconquering Jerusalem, July 15, 1099. They conquered it. They come in there. They slaughtered the inhabitants mercilessly in the name of Christ. And crusaders, feeling their task accomplished, returned home. What do you think happened to Jerusalem after that? Muslims got it back. (laughs) Hard, can imagine. And so there ended up being a series of crusades, including the tragic children's crusade, which is one of the saddest episodes in church history. Terrible thing. Result. Nothing of lasting benefit, but a great deal of difficulty for Christian missionaries trying to go to Libya or Saudi Arabia or any of these places now. And I'm not saying necessarily it would be any easier now because they've been militaristic toward us. Realize we were just returning the favor, but we shouldn't have done it because it's not Christian. It may be, it may be Islamic, but it is not Christian. So, that's the Crusades. Finally, we're going to finish with the flowering of scholasticism. There are two key factors. The rise of the universities and the reintroduction of the teachings of Aristotle in the West. The schools of scholasticism were centered in these European universities. There are different types of, um, of scholasticism, realism, conceptualism, nominalism. There's no real point in talking about this in 14 seconds now, is there? So let's just move on. There are prominent, huh? Look it up in your encyclopedia. Go home and look up realism. Try to get your hands on it. It has to do with absolute truths and whether we can understand things. It's really interesting how those thoughts, which eventually came articulated by Immanuel Kant and the Enlightenment and all that, were first kicked around at this point by the scholastics. An- Anselm, uh, the four A's, Anselm, Abelard, Albertus, Magnus, and Aquinas were the four greatest, along with Peter Lombard, I think, should be in there, but his name doesn't begin with A. So you can write him in there, Peter Lombard and his okay. sentences. Um, they were all scholastics. Uh, Anselm was one of the greatest. He wrote, Cur Deus Homo, Why God Became a Man. His basic idea was that the, 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 how do I put it, the importance of a crime is measured by the person or the importance of a person against whom it is committed. Now realize the medieval structure. You've got people way above you on the scale and way below you. A crime is more important if it's committed against a king or an emperor than if it's committed against somebody at a lower level. How much more then Is sin against God an incredible crime? In one sense, the logic isn't bad, um, especially as it pertains to God. Our sin against God is of infinite magnitude. It really is. And therefore, he he said, it puts us in infinite debt, a debt we can't pay. And the only one who can is the God-man. He's the only one with the resources, the deep pockets, let's say, enough to pay that debt Jesus Christ. Why God became man? To pay our debt. Uh, he also argued against the ransom to the devil idea that, that basically Jesus came to pay a ransom to the devil. Peter Abelard, very interesting person who we will now skip. Albertus Magnus, same thing. Thomas Aquinas, the greatest of the scholastic theologians. Basically, Catholicism has been Thomas Aquinas, Thomas theology right up to this present day. Now, there have been some significant changes because of liberalism in the 20th century and post-Vatican II, But after the Reformation... The Catholic scholars got together and basically said Aquinas is our man. And whatever he taught, that's what we believe. Now, Aquinas was an amazing blending of Aristotelian philosophy and Christian theology. From Aquinas, we get the reasonings for transubstantiation. We'll talk about the basic idea that when you, as as a Catholic, are taking the bread, it's not bread, it's truly, actually, literally the body of Jesus Christ. How can that be? It doesn't taste like anything but bread. He explained that by Aristotelian philosophy. And it came from Aquinas. So basically the idea was um, uh, or, or that Catholic theology was Thomas Aquinas' theology, which he wrote in Summa Theologiae. Now, in the late Middle Ages, we have a, a number of things that uh, started to prepare for the Reformation. Next week you're going to see a film about John Wycliffe, and I want to talk about him for a minute so you'll understand what you're watching. John Wycliffe lived in the 14th century in England. And his basic idea was that you have to get the scriptures into the common language of the people. Now, if you went into a Catholic church at that time, and it's a, really it really doesn't make much sense to say Catholic church, just say church, because there wasn't any other thing. But if you went into the church, what kind of Bible would you find there? What language would it be in? It would be in Latin, thanks to Jerome. Well, how many of the people could read, first of all, but never mind, read Latin? He thought, we've got to get the language and uh, the Bible into common language. Furthermore, he had these lay preachers called Lollards that went around with these scriptures and would preach to the people. Uh, and the Catholic Church wanted to execute him, but he, he had a series of strokes and died before they could get at him. So, here we get to disinterred again, sorry. Uh, they dug up his bones a number of years later and burned his bones, the best they could do. God had taken him too soon. And so the film you're going to see next week begins with that little ceremony, digging up the bones and burning them, and then a man who was a Lollard starts to explain Wycliffe. After Wycliffe came John Huss. John Huss got Wycliffe's writings and started to put it into practice in Bohemia, the Czech Republic. Uh, Huss preached the following things. He said transubstantiation is wrong. He said we should not be subservient to the Pope. He opposed popular belief in the saints. He opposed the efficacy of, of priestly absolution and priesthood in general, thought that the scriptures should be translated into the common language. He was basically Martin Luther a hundred years too early. And what did they do to him? They burned him at the stake. It just wasn't time yet. There really is very little difference between the teaching of John Huss and Martin Luther. It just wasn't his time yet. And he got it from John Wycliffe. It was Wycliffe that first put those ideas. So next week, I won't be here, but you're going to see the film on Wycliffe, and that's, I think it's going to be very instructional for you.
0: and for the glory of God.